All right, so um, just a quick intro, 60 Second Spark is the title of my podcast. This is episode seven. Um, I started a company about a year ago. It's called Spark the Pop-Up. It's a leadership development um, business, I would say, because at first it started as just workshops and then it kind of evolved into a lot of different things. So now I started a podcast in January where I solely interview people um, about their leadership experiences and the roles that they have been in in their lives and kind of how they tie these themes into leadership. Um, I have hosted three separate workshops now. Um, I did one in San Diego last year. I've done one in Hartford, Connecticut, and I did one in Atlanta, Georgia uh, in February. And so that one is an open forum where people come in and everything is kind of centered around conversation and shared experiences, uh, which is why I really think the podcast ties into it. Um, but just kind of honing in on this anchor that leadership really is kind of the crux of everything that we do as people. And if you kind of let that go too far, you can lose a lot of kind of these things that we talk about, you know, your personal values, where do you stand? Um, how do you carry yourself? How do you influence people around you? So uh, super applicable in the time that we're in. And I think not enough emphasis is placed on it. Which is ironic because, David, when you came out with your podcast, um, I was like, hey, this is everything we're doing. And then Chuck, you know, being the, the head pastor um, at your church is, is all of these things that we're doing are all in line. And so to, to see that um, is really great. So welcome to David Robinson and Chuck Robinson to episode seven of 60 Seconds Park. So just a really brief background. So in episode six, I interviewed our parents and then our Aunt Rita um, about their experiences growing up in Little Rock, which I had never had that conversation with them before. And some of the questions I asked them, I realized I didn't even know if Aunt Rita had played sports. Like that's how <laughs> kind of like I started to feel bad. I was like, imagine having kids and they're like not interested in you <laughs> at all. Um, we know what that's like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, trust me. We know. So I felt convicted uh, in that conversation, but, um, and then Dave, I was telling Chuck when you, when you stepped off it in this conversation and thinking I had never had a conversation with you all about your midshipman experience either. So, um, Oh, and let me just say as a disclaimer before we start, uh, the, the views expressed on this podcast are my own and are not affiliated with department of defense or the Naval Academy at all. Um, just in case we get into into some sticky conversations, but, um, so I don't know if y'all noticed that I usually go by my middle name now, which is weird. I get, it would be for my family because you all know me as Ashley. So if people are hearing, uh, don't be confused. Y'all have been in this game for 31 years, so I'm not going to make you start and change it up now. Um, but I'm a 2011 grad. David is a 1987 grad and Chuck is a 1992 grad of the Naval Academy. Oh, 93. The internet is it's trash. Okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> they don't take the degree back, I'm good. <laughs> it's good. printed. Um, 93. So all varsity athletes, um, Chuck and Dave, both played basketball. Um, and then I ran track. It was the slight anomaly. Wasn't quite tall enough to to even want to be mixed in the mix of the Division One basketball. But um, I will start with uh, you, Dave, and kind of just ask you to take us through your experience from starting out as a midshipman and 
really anything that you kind of felt it, it like and it could be it could have been a totally normal experience right but also your experience being a black midshipman um minority person of color however however we're saying it for this yeah well that's that's say my first real big experience was you know just getting there the first day um i remember checking with my roommates and um and just thinking i didn't belong um i thought uh you know i, I saw all these kids uh, their grades were good their test scores were good and i thought man I, I just don't belong here. There's not many people that look like me. I'm going to probably flunk out of this place. So <laughs> that was kind of my first thought that first day. I remember going to bed that night, just kind of crying and thinking, what did I get myself into? Why would I come and do something like this? And then, um, and then the next real prominent uh, experience racially that I experienced was at the swimming pool. You know, we went to do the first swimming test and they said, okay, look, tread water for 20 minutes. And it didn't sound hard. But I realized I had never really worked out in the pool. I, it wasn't a part of my lifestyle. And I jumped in the pool and tried to tread water and, and I barely made it through the 20 minutes. And I was exhausted. And then they said, okay, 100 meters crawl. And I didn't even know what crawl stroke was. I was like, okay, so what are we doing? And you know, it, all the white people were like totally comfortable in the pool. And I remember, is men, like all the black kids in my class flunked this swimming test. And I thought, wow, that's a serious cultural difference. You, <laughs> you know, I thought I joined the Navy. I really don't even know how to swim. You know, I swam like two laps, got exhausted and climbed out of the pool. I said, I can't, I'm not going to finish four laps. And, um, and, and then I, that was one of the first times I realized, man, culturally, you know, I'm out of place and I'm going to have to make real adjustments to, to be successful here. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. The swimming has not changed. <laughs> no, it wasn't hard. You know, you, you spend extra time practicing and it wasn't really hard, but it just showed me how culturally things were were different. And and you don't a lot of these things we, we get used to in our lives, we get used to the difference. You know, I, I always you know, we grew up with, you know, like you talked earlier, grandma and granddad, you know, growing up in Little Rock South uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. So we knew I knew that my mother and father grew up in segregated society. So I knew they didn't get the best schooling. I knew they didn't go to the good schools. And my, my mother in Columbia, South Carolina, the school was right there. There was a great school right around the corner from my house. They, they shipped her out, they bust her out to the black school in the, in the suburb. And you know the quality difference was probably tremendous. So I, I grew up with that knowledge that mom and dad have worked extra hard and made sure that their three kids go to college because they didn't have that same opportunity. And, um, and, and they did an unbelievable job getting us prepared. And I look at Kim with her PhD, Charles Naval Academy, me Naval Academy. For, for a parent in today's society to do that, it's against the odds. But a parent in the 1950s, you know, somebody who grew up in the 50s and 60s, to do that is a minor miracle. And so I give my parents a lot of credit for pushing us to achieve the uh, things we have. Absolutely. Did you, um, so Kim being the oldest, she's the oldest of all the first cousins. Um, yeah, she's two and a half years older than me and Chuck is six years younger. So Kim being the oldest and you kind of being the, the middle child but the oldest son, did you feel when you were, choose, I guess, choosing to go to the Naval Academy, I say choosing because I feel like I didn't really have a choice, but um, <laughs> when you chose to go when you were getting recruited, did you feel obligated at all or kind of like a sense of I should be doing this because it's, you know, a prestigious 
Um, I didn't feel obligated necessarily to go to the academy specifically. I did feel obligated to move the needle for our family. Mm -hmm. So I, I felt like I needed to go to a great school, give myself a good solid education, which is going to make all the difference in the world, and to propel our family forward. So I felt a tremendous obligation to say, okay, coming from that segregate, when I go to Little Rock and I see the family and I think, wow, you know, we've overcome a lot, but now it's on my shoulder to keep pushing forward. I, I felt a tremendous responsibility in that respect. And I, I've tried not to make my kids feel that, although I want them to be aware of where they come from. And I want them to achieve great things uh, because they're gifted, but I also want them to be aware of where they've come from. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so obviously, very accomplished athlete. Um, playing basketball at school, did you see a shift in, you were in 13th company, right? I started off in 14th company. Um, I started off in, I'm sorry, 23rd company and then moved to 14th company. Okay, so 14th. Um, when you, from the time that you started to the time that you finished, obviously, you know, you had the infamous growth spurt, um, you know, dominating basketball, Navy basketball, uh, holding NCAA records that are, that still haven't been broken. Um, obviously Navy records that, that are still standing. Um, did you see a shift or a change in, in the way maybe that you felt as a midshipman or the way that people treated you after kind of the, sh the shift with your success with basketball? I mean, I want to say, um, not racially. I, I, I want to say that I was always impressed with the military that it was kind of ahead of the rest of society. You know, we saw so <laughs> many things growing up of, you know, just instances where it was just racial. I saw the police come to an, um, a, um, I was at a pinball place, an arcade, video arcade, and the police came when there was an incident between a black kid and a white kid, and the police assumed uh, that the black kid started the incident. And I watched it, I knew, I saw, I said, no, no, that's not true. Um, but I always saw that kind of built in, um, you know, racism. And I thought, wow, the military, you, it's, it's kind of merit based. It's kind of nice. It's a little, seems to be a little bit ahead of society. So um, I was always impressed with that about the military. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Do you remember seeing anything of, um, cause I think about it and it's, you may laugh when I say this. So when I was thinking about it yesterday and kind of how I wanted to, shape the conversation or how maybe you might have felt. So I thought of it sort of from a perspective, you know how OJ Simpson was very like, I'm not black, I'm OJ, right? Because he was <laughs> beloved by yeah. kind of everybody. Yeah. Uh, it transcended him being black man. Um, and and I, I don't know if that is comparable to maybe what your, maybe not personal yeah. experience, but definitely from the outside. I feel no, like I would say that that's, that's very true. I've had many instances where people told me, um, you're, you're different. And, and, and I tell people, I'm, I'm not different. I'm just like them, all right? So I am them, you know? And, and I remember being on a plane one time, I was sitting next to a, um, a doctor, an older white gentleman, that we were, we were flying back from somewhere to Texas. And we had, I, we had what I thought was a great conversation. We talked about politics and life and health and family and everything. And, and, um, and I thought it was a great conversation, but we were getting ready to land. And the, the, he was a doctor. He turned to me and he said, um, wow, you, you know, you're so charming and interesting. He said, when did you lose your black accent? And I thought, I don't, like, what, 
I don't even know how to answer that. Like, what is the kind of question is that? You know, that's, I, and so it just kind of, I, you always see those type of times when people, you know, they kind of let down their guard and, and you realize they don't really see you the same way they see everyone else. And, um, and yeah, that's happened to me on many occasions. And obviously basketball is, has kind of covered me from a lot of things. Uh, but that's not to say I'm still not aware that they're present. Yeah, and that's a good way to put it, uh, that they don't see you the same. I think that from the, from the rhetoric and the conversations that I've heard, we, we are so polarized at this point, right? You're either on the left or you're on the right side of the needle, not talking politically. You're, or you're, you know, if you're being anti-racist or you're a racist. Like there's no kind of in-between or anything for someone to say, you know, this is just the way that I think and maybe not because I think that you're less than me because of this, your skin color, but just because I see you differently, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, implicit bias and, and the, the ways that we grow up. So that's a good way to put it. Um, okay, so I do want to ask you though, so there are some stark differences between the three of us and our majors. Um, so you're applied mathematics, right? Am I right? Is it I, I, was, yeah, I was a math major with a uh, focus on... Um, computer science okay that sounds awful first of all um <laughs> but we have seen recently and i would say maybe in the last 10 or so years a very large push towards the stem community and people of color minorities you know being encouraged to go into the group one majors right so that's like engineering mathematics sciences physics so as a, as a point i did go to the naval academy i wanting to be an engineer so my first year you know how you choose your service selection you're, you're not service selection but your major mm -hmm. when you first get there but then you can change it again after your freshman year <laughs> my first selection was systems engineering oh. so that's what i wanted to do but my, my freshman year all of my advisors and my coaches all talked me out of it because they said it doesn't match up well with sports with mm -hmm. all the with all the um, laboratories and all the other things that they do, it wouldn't line up well with that schedule. So because of sports, they got me to change my major from engineering, from systems engineering to math. Okay, so not because you were struggling, because that's a more common, that would have, would have been what happened to me if I were to choose engineering first. They no, it wasn't, it wasn't because great. I was struggling. No, I was, I was very capable of getting it done. I just, uh, no, I was told that, you know, you're going to be an athlete and that takes up a lot of your time. It's, you know, that's going to be your business. <laughs> so, so you better fix your other schedule so that it works with the athletes, the athletics. Okay. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Um, so what are your thoughts now as we've kind of like moved into, I have my thoughts on STEM, um, but it's still a very big push for, for communities to get their minorities to choose STEM as a major. What, what are your thoughts on that specifically, being a STEM major? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's important. I think there is a shortage of, of uh, uh, engineers and um, science and technology focused individuals. And that's just not, not that's across the board, not, not, not just uh, minorities, obviously. But um, I think it's a great area, but you've got to be prepped to be in that area. You can't just go to college and say, I'm going to be an engineer when your whole elementary schooling was, you know, at a terrible school and you didn't even get the fundamental, the basics to, to begin the program. So that's the, that's the, the, the essence of the problem. And that's, that's what I've tried to work on for the last 27 years, building schools where these kids go to college with, you know, 10 or 12 AP courses behind them. 
where they know what the work what the work ethic it's going to take to get through those programs where they're prepared for the load that's going to be put on them when they get to school. You're going to take at Navy, you know, we all know you take 18 to 21 hours. I, you know, most regular schools, 12 hours is the max or 15 hours is the max. So the, the, you know, you have to know what the kind of load you're going to have to deal with is, and you have to be prepared to deal with it. So it's not like you can easily just say, Oh, we should push these kids towards STEM. we got to prep them to be STEM majors. Yeah, and that's, that is actually, I'm going to write this down because I want to come back to this um, and some of the reactionary remarks, but the, that's going to go into another topic that's being pushed right now, which is mentorship, um, but it goes into preparing these students, right, to be successful. Um, okay, let's see. So, Chuck, I want to shift over to you. To, to kind of give us your insight. And I feel like you and I are more of the kindred spirit here for <laughs> being English majors, right? In the group three side. Um, We're communicators. Also, yes, yes. Also being a, um, the youngest, as I'm also the youngest, um, I want to kind of start with what, what your feelings were to choose, to choose to go to the academy following Dave um, who obviously had a really successful and awesome career um, and sort of how Dave said that, you know, he wanted to be a part of moving the needle. Did you feel similarly or, you know, cause Kim went to an HBCU and, and how did that kind of differ of seeing your two older siblings of you have, you really had a choice um, of what experience you wanted to have. Right. I think that, I think, think that's a great question because seeing my brother go to the Naval Academy and it being a predominantly um, white institution, and then seeing my sister choose just the opposite, going to Howard University in Washington, D.C., um, it made me, you know, wonder, say, which, you know, which direction would I want to go? Would I want to be, which environment would I want to be in? And I remember that my choice, uh, it really came down to my, to what I wanted in my, in, in, for my future at that particular time. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I didn't know if I wanted to be a doctor, an attorney, an engineer, a custodial engineer. I had no idea what I wanted to be. Um, I just knew I wanted to be successful, right? And I think I know people right now who are 30 and 40 years old that don't know what they want to be. And I didn't want to be in that situation. So I had an advantage of making, uh, in making my choice to go to the academy, but I also had a disadvantage. So my advantage was my brother would come home every summer, every opportunity, he'd come home and tell me the truth about the academy. <laughs> and he would give me the stories and he would tell me really what happened, not the promotional videos, not the PSAs. He would tell me what was going on. And, um, and so it made, the, it made the decision a little harder. But race never played, a, never played a role in the institution that I chose. So like David, I had a couple of choices of schools that I wanted to go to to play basketball for. Mm -hmm. um, but because those schools weren't necessarily the top tier basketball programs, I, I pretty much, I was real, realistic and knew that I probably wouldn't play professional basketball, so I better get my education. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, so it was interesting because uh, I remember my dad sitting, I don't know if my dad, da David, I don't know if dad did this for you, but he did this for me. I remember my dad sitting me down in a car in about 10th grade, and I remember him saying to me, son, let's talk. Well, my dad never said that. <laughs> so, 
So I, I thought I had either done something wrong or uh, something serious was about to happen. And, and the thing he told me was, he said, your mother and I can't afford to send you to college. He said, so you have two choices. He said, one of your choices is not to sit in my house once you graduate. <laughs> <laughs> but he said, the, uh, he said, but you have two choices. You can either go into the military or you can um, get a scholarship to college. And I think that was in ninth grade. And I, and I say that because I remember that after that conversation, everything changed. I, my grades changed. I, I, I became a, a straight A student. I realized that my future was dependent on me. I appreciated my dad for his transparency. And, uh, and from that moment on, I said, I have, to, I have to do everything I need to do to be successful. So anyway, so choosing to go to the academy, I didn't even think about the fact that it was predominantly white, right? <laughs> I just thought about the benefit. And, um, and then arriving, and, and, and then again, I, again, I had the advantage of David telling me the truth. So when I arrived, I was prepared for the culture. When I say the culture, I was prepared for the demographics. Of course, I had gone to the academy every year for four and a half years to support his basketball career and other, other programs. And so that part wasn't a great or a huge adjustment. Um, and like David said, I think that growing up as a, as a black man or, or African-American male in, in the United States, inherently and intuitively, you just get used to um, having to maneuver through life and through- Being pulled over by the police? <laughs> oh, and you want to hear that story <laughs> on more than one occasion? Yeah, we get yeah, used to yeah. It. So, uh, well, to to that point, I remember, I remember driving. Um, I had a brand new sports car, and I remember driving that brand new sports car as a twenty-two year old, twenty-one year old, and I remember uh, being pulled over. Um, and when I, and, I, and unfortunately, it was in Mississippi. And not oh, Mississippi is a great state. And so <laughs> I remember being pulled over and I remember forgetting that I was one driving a brand new sports car, two, that I was 21 years old and three, that I was black. I forgot all three of those things. I got pulled over and when the, and I was not speeding, I hadn't done anything wrong. And uh, when the man, uh, when the police officer pulled me over, his first words to me were, whose car is this boy? Wow. And, um, and immediately all of those things came back to my remembrance. <laughs> oh, I'm a black man in Mississippi. I better be careful. <laughs> so, so you become accustomed to maneuvering in those environments. And, and I don't know about David, but I, I, never, I never harbored any um, dysfunction or, or ill will toward anybody. I just understood. It's kind of like being, oh, forgive me, but it's kind of like being short. If you're short, you know you need a stepping stool to get to a certain point in the store. Or if you're tall, you know you have to duck before you go under certain doors. And it's just something that you learn to do. And so when I got to the academy, that, that culture change wasn't a great culture, wasn't a huge culture change. Now here's the disadvantage. The disadvantage was, was going to the academy after my brother and instead of being celebrated, um, and, I don't, and I don't think this was because of race, I just, just instead of being celebrated, I think there were a lot of people who were uh, less than pleased that, uh, that I was at the academy. They felt that I had received some favoritism. And so, I, so, so if there was any 
racially biased treatment of me. I had no idea whether it came because of the color of my skin or because of my relation, my relationships, my, my familial yeah. relationship. And I never thought to myself, well, that person just doesn't like me because of, of, of the color of my skin. Right. Uh, but on many occasions, I did think to myself, I, I had some, some incidents, um, even when playing basketball, where there were some people, I very, very specifically knew that they didn't like me because of who my brother was. Mm -hmm. and, um, so I, I think that kind of helped me. I, <laughs> I didn't have, uh, you can tell. I couldn't tell. Uh, and of course there are times when you can, um, but, and another thing, and you may, you may relate to this, Ashley, is that the grind at the Academy is so rigorous and it's so, uh, just heavy that you have to put your head down and you have to keep pressing forward and you almost don't have time to worry about you know, what's going on on my left, what's going on on my right. And, and, and you just make a group of friends and you just try to make it through, um, through that experience. And I think most of my, my experiences when it comes to being, being African-American or being black came as soon as I graduated. Most mm -hmm. of my negative experience came as soon as I graduated because the academy is an isolated environment. You're protected. It's, it's somewhat of a safe environment. I was well aware that there were some people who treated me well simply because of who my brother was, right? Um, and they may not have treated me that way outside of, of that relationship. But when I graduated, then, then you experienced some things. Absolutely. I can see where that comes in. Um, and, and so I was reading some articles about you specifically, Chuck. Um, and I've known this kind of color for my adult life as well, that the personalities between you and Dave are pretty, it's wider than I think people would, <laughs> would outwardly know unless they knew you knew you, right? Um, so I would say that Dave is more of kind of like a quiet reserve, like I'm gonna, and I would imagine as a midshipman, Dave is more of like, I'm gonna do my work, I'm going to practice, I'm going to my room. Like these are the three places you'll find me, the library, you know, the basketball court or whatever, my deck. Um, but Chuck, I would say, but like you say, BC before Christ uh, was a little bit more of an outward social butterfly. Um, can you talk to me about a little bit about how that maybe played into your experience, personal experience at school? Yeah, I, th I think that's a great point. My brother and I are very different in our personalities. Uh, but the funny thing is we get along great. But And the other interesting thing is I really think he's more talkative than I am. <laughs> That's probably true. Yeah, I, I, I do. I really, I, I, I'm a situational extrovert. So, so depending on the circumstance, I'll, I'll talk. Um, and especially depending on the people that we're talking to. So, um, so I think that um, personality wise, my outgoing personality actually was a defense mechanism. It helped me at the academy to um to make friends because and and i don't know maybe david maybe david feels this way as well especially being tall and he can be intimidating your personality can disarm people right and so i unconsciously i was probably trying to help disarm people um because of our height because of our size uh and and, and other factors by my personality just saying hey i'm not a threat to you um I'm kind, I'm, you know, and, and I do want to, because I do want to be your friend. You know what I mean? Uh, I, am the, I am the type of person that I want to be people's friends. 
and, and I don't want to have a cat, but I want to be people's friend. <laughs> but I think that helped me through the academy because because it just helped to form relationships I might I might not have had otherwise. And here's a perfect example. Uh, I, and I don't know about David, but my I typically am attracted to people who are pretty opposite of me. Mm-hmm. And so that includes uh, culture, race, demographics. Um, so my first roommate at the academy actually played on the basketball team with me, and he was my complete opposite. He was from Mumfordsville, Kentucky, and he was from down south, and everything he said had a twang. But he was he was as nice of a guy, and he was the most honest guy. I, I, I think he might have been on the, the, the honor board there. <laughs> he was the nicest guy. And so we, we just got along and I wanted to room with him. And I think that relationship, him being, and of course, not of course, but he was white. That relationship, people could see and they'd say, boy, they say, um, you know, if Bird, his name was Michael Bird, if Bird can get along with anybody and if Robinson can get along with anybody, then I can get along with them. Um, so I think the relationships that you have uh, make a difference on other people's ability to relate to you. Yeah, and that's that's interesting that you say that, uh, especially about the height, and which I do think plays back into our demographic being black. I mean, because kind of the stereotypical thing is right. If you're if you're a big black man, I'm scared of you. Um, really, and that that goes for anybody, right? Um, and I think that that's something that I have seen from our fathers, both of our fathers, specifically because, you know, my dad is 6'7", your dad is 6'4"? 6'6", six, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, 6'6". Six, six. So they're big dudes themselves. Um, but that was something I always noticed about them as well. Not only, especially my dad, right? Like my dad is loud. Um, and I would say Uncle Ambrose maybe not so much as loud, but very, very much affable and like, easy going in terms of I can I have a lot of memories of him like laughing um which is an interesting kind of memory to have a person and not like conversations but just laughing and my dad does that a lot too like he but he's a very loud laugher and I just yeah, it's just it's over but that is something that I think that I know my dad does for the exact reason that you were describing um because you kind of when you're kind of engaging with people for the first time, a lot of times and they're kind of trying to assess you like, whoa, you are really large. You know, I'm, I don't know how to make this. And they start laughing with you or like kind of telling a joke. My dad's very like just moving people around too, which I'm sure is not, is not helping his cause. But, um, you know, he kind of gets them on his side by showing that he's, you know, easygoing, funny guy, um, able to, to, to laugh and be a part of the conversation. So that is something I think that also goes back into what you all were saying about learning to move in the skin that you are and the things that you kind of start to do unconsciously to adapt to your surroundings, which, which is very interesting. I think the word adapt is excellent because that is what you do on a daily basis as a black man. I mean, mm-hmm. And, it, and it's not with, it's, it's not consciously, you, you just do. And, and here's a perfect example. When I get on an elevator, if I get on an elevator with, with, with a white person, especially a white woman, I try to get off first. Mm. And I try to push a button and make sure that I can step off so that she doesn't feel like I'm a threat to her. Um, another example is 
when I talk to people, I purposely take two or three steps backwards so I don't seem as tall to them. Hmm. Right? And that way it, 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 it kind of, it helps to level the playing field. Um, and, and it's just a, it's, it's, something, it's something that you just do or I do uh, just, to, just to help build bridges right? With, without having to say anything, without having to do anything. I remember David had friends at the academy uh, and I would always try to make his friends, I would always try to befriend his friends because um, I, I, David would meet people that met me who knew him and they would say, your brother is the nicest guy. <laughs> well, but it's just a part of building relationships and, and you know, it's much easier to, to get along with people than it is not to get along with people. So, and I've seen that from my brother. One of the things that I, that, that I admire about him is that no matter how tired he is or how many people have asked for his autograph or where we are in the world or how many times he's been interrupted while we're eating dinner, he is always ridiculously kind to people yeah. and just genteel. And I think that speaks volumes for, um, and I don't think he does that because, you know, because he's black. I just think he does that because that's who our parents have raised us to be. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. But, you know, like Ashley said, a smile is, plays a big role, right? I, I think um, one of the things I realized even more so when I had children was how big and intimidating I am. And, and, and so, you know, as, as people of faith, you guys understand, I'm trying to show these kids what Christ looks like. And so me getting in their face and yelling at them and intimidating them is not what, you know, I always thought, okay, what if God got in my face? I'd be terrified. And terrified is not the thing that God wants me to show to these children, right? And so, so I always was very aware of my size. And I always tried not to impose my size on people as much as, um, you know, try to speak reason and, you know, and love. And so, so that always played a big part in everything that I did. And I said, you know, look, you know, my size is a big advantage in many cases. It's an automatic advantage. And you get, you get confidence, you get, you know, you have strength. There's a lot of things that go along with size that are incredible and wonderful. But you like I never wanted the, to to use it as an intimidation factor and I always realized that being black it is an uncomfortable thing imagine turning or coming around the corner and running into a seven foot black guy you know it's like okay whoa hey oh hey you know so you you do have to disarm people and that's something I suppose I've gotten used to my entire life always wanted to disarm people first and then deal with them on a person-to-person -person basis and, you know, not with any racial boundaries or any other boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and this is going to, so I'm going to drag back to something that Uncle Ambrose and my dad both expressed when I was talking to them. I asked them specifically because, you know, Arita has all daughters, but with the, in terms of having black sons, right, if they ever sat down or when they sat down with, y'all and had the talk about um you know police officers how do you act around certain people and both of them said that they never did and i thought that that was interesting because they when they described their their experience growing up in little rock it was very much of like grandpa and grandma they lived in a neighborhood that wasn't 
like the hood or traditionally uh, low income. So they, they were kind of already in a place where their parents made them feel like they weren't much different, even though in the 60s, that was still that was still very much a thing that they had to be cognizant of, but they were just raised in a place where they didn't always have to think about, you know, I need to be careful because of X, Y, Z. Um, which was interesting when I heard Uncle Ambrose tell you, he was like, I was not going to Central because I was not doing that. Um, so to have that choice, right? And I know that there are some families where they're like, no, you need to do this because we need to move the needle. This is how our family is going to can do that. But I feel like that we've kind of transcended that through our generations as well um, of trying to raise kids or how I, how I hear you all talk about raising your kids and how I know my dad kind of instilled in my brother and I of not seeing myself as a black woman before I think I can or can't do certain things um, or letting that be a, some sort of limitation in my mind of, well, maybe I shouldn't because of this. Um, while still remaining cognizant, like you said, that this is still a factor that maybe other people would be thinking about. Yeah, you know, I, thought, I always thought it was interesting. Grandpa uh, Ambrose, uh, my grandfather, or, uh, our grandfather, um, <laughs> uh, seeing him as a man who was, you know, constantly uh, confronted with this racial issue you living in a segregated environment and having a job at the post office never you know never getting promoted and all this sort of stuff that you know he just he just dealt with but he had such um such a charisma about him you know it was, you know there's something about those old school black people that i got to be around that was such a character building thing and for me there was never, I never had an anger associated with racism. I, I never had an anger associated with, you know, yeah, we don't live in, you know, we're not brought up in these, in these nice neighborhoods, right? Like there's, they built the highway there so they could put us on the other side. I never <laughs> was angry about that. And, and I think that came from my mom and dad. It came from granddad. It came from, you know, people who had pride in who they were and they went and they got their education and they learned music and they learned all the things that, that made you a sophisticated person. And, and so that's one area where I, I was always very um, aware and very, very happy to be in that I don't have to be angry. I don't have to, yeah, you know, yeah, if we look at the pictures of slavery and we look at the pictures of people, you know, white people having postcards of hanging people and sending them to each other. And you think about, you know, our ancestors getting branded when they come over here or treated, you know, the way they've been treated. And then a lot of that still lingering on shoot a hundred years ago, they, they made voting legal and they made laws and we still haven't adjusted to it, you know? And so, so to know all of that stuff and not have a bitterness or an anger about it, but just to say, hey, let's go prove ourselves. Let's go out of here and let's be the best people that we can be. I think I was very fortunate to have a family that set a, a phenomenal example in that. And so I, I guess for me, I've always felt like my future's in my own hands. I know I'm climbing uphill. There's no question about that. When I got to Naval Academy, there was, you know, 150, 200 people that looked like me in a class of, you know, in a school of 5,000. So yeah, did I know I was climbing uphill? Absolutely. But, um, you know, never saw it as a huge disadvantage and felt like I could always do that 
because of, you know, because of our family, because we, we've just never seen it as a hurdle. And so, you know, for me, that made a huge difference in the way I approached um, everything. It's definitely a privilege. I think that we were fortunate, um, just fortunate, because there are so many generations of Black people who were, were not in a position to be able to hand off even that mindset, right? Yeah. Um, but it, not it even going today. into, yeah. But I mean, I, you know, we do schools. I build schools. So we build them in low-income areas, and I see it everywhere. And I see, you know, you're in the 10th grade, you read at a third grade level, and there is no confidence. And you go home, it's a single-parent home, or, you know, there's no confidence that they can achieve things. I mean, there's a feeling in general. You know, I saw it in Southeast DC when I was going to Naval Academy. You know, we, you know, you have, you know, Maryland, you know, Southern Maryland, Southeast, you know, Southeast DC, you have all those neighborhoods there. And I went to about 25 different high schools and talked to kids. And I saw the, the lack of confidence that they could achieve things. So, I mean, I would talk to these kids and they'd be like, man, you got it easy. You go and play in the NBA. You know, rest of us, man, I, I can go sell drugs and I can make money. And that's, you know, that's what I see. I'm, you know, why should I get in a race, a 400 meter race with the white kids who are starting on the other side of the track? That makes no sense. Mm -hmm. They're already way ahead of us that, you know, that, that race, I don't even make any sense. I'm not running that race. I'm going to run a race. I know I can win. And so that's kind of a mentality of a lot. I mean, to this day, a lot of black people who live in communities where they have not seen successful um, people that look like them. And they say, well, you know, I'm going to run a race where I know I can win. And, and, and so I'm trying to say, well, education is the low-hanging fruit, man. You get your education, then you're fighting on a level base. Uh, so, so, you know, that's always shaped kind of the way that I've approached um, everything in my life is let's put ourselves in a position where we can be successful. Then we can compete fairly. Yeah, that's a good point. That is, that's a very good point. Um, and, it, and it ties directly into really what leadership is, right? And so we already talked about the very crucial part is building relationships. How well can you do that? Do you recognize the need that you even need to do that? Um, and honing your own personal gifts to kind of get that part done so that people actually listen to you, right? Um, and then the mindset factor. When we talk about it at school, in my classes, um, fixed versus growth mindset, right? And you see a lot of that playing into exactly what you're talking about. Low-income communities, if there's nobody that looks like me doing X, Y, Z, then why do I want to do it? Um, and Chuck and I were talking about this very briefly beforehand. You know, I'm the only black Marine at school right now. And I remember leaving school when I was graduating thinking and knowing, like, I want to come back here because we didn't have any female, black female Marine representation um, really at all. I think there was like one semester where we had um, a black female captain, but then she was like in admissions and she left, right? So you didn't see any of that. Um, and just coming back and thinking like, okay, you know, I know that this is a statistic, but literally all of the black, or, yeah, black female midshipmen that have come and spoken to me, bring it up. They bring it up to me. Cause I'm like, you know, I'm not gonna you know, throw this in their face and be like, look, this is why you should listen to me. And they're like, hey, you know, what is it like? being this person and so to know what representation means and why it matters and why we need you know, people to kind of keep with the growth mindset of i have to try to keep pushing the needle right um and i think um that kind of brings me to my next question i, I want to go back to chuck um this is interesting so dave you have three boys right and chuck you have one daughter 
And I just wonder what your kind of thoughts and Jada has really grown into just a beautiful young lady and she's in college now at Liberty um, doing really awesome things. And I remember being around you at certain, like it was kind of like snapshots in our lives, right? Like being around you in different stages of her life um, and kind of how you were very, very much a girl dad, right? Um, Y'all are BFFs and kind of what, maybe what your mindset was or maybe what you were thinking in raising a black woman. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, that's another, another good question. Um, I think one of the advantages uh, that I did have was that my wife and I, we waited five years before we had any children. And so, so we were a little more mature. We were, we were more aware of, um, of, maybe the obstacles that we had faced that we had come through. Sometimes you come through obstacles that you're not even aware that you went through. You look back and you're like, man, where'd that fence come from? Did I just jump, jump over that fence? And so we were able to look at, hey, what, are, what do we want our daughter to be? What do we want her to believe that she can accomplish? And again, back to what David was saying, I thank God for our parents and like your dad and mom who put it in our mind that there were no limitations. And, and while, um, while I, I know that there's a saying that education levels the playing field, I'm not exactly sure that's absolutely true. I think education gets you on the playing field, mm-hmm. right? But I still think that some people are starting on second base. <laughs> but but education is absolutely necessary. So, um, so in our families, whether we were going to go to college, it wasn't even a question. There, there, there was never, I never questioned whether or not I was going to go get my degree because we understood that that was the standard. So with my daughter, we, uh, we said, hey, my wife and I said, we know that, that Jade is going to grow up and that she's going to face some challenges. We want to make sure we set her up for success. So we put it in her mind immediately. We, I don't think we've ever, ever not told her that um, we didn't say what, co- we didn't say, are you going to college? We said, which college are you going to every time we talk to her? Which school would you like to go to? We'll help you go to that school. What would you like to major in? And we would always uh, try to guide her toward her passions. I, I think that, so you mentioned, Ashley, that you're an English major and that I'm an English major. It's not that we can't do math. <laughs> it's just not our passion, right? And, uh, and I remember, like David was saying, I started off at the Naval Academy as a political science major. And uh, after the first year of being a political science major, I had fallen asleep in every political science class I had. So my, my academic advisor said, I don't think your passion is political science. So, so I remember them telling me, they said, you need to do something you love to do. And I said, well, I love to read and I love to talk. And so they said, well, become an English major. And, and that made a difference. So we've been trying to make sure my daughter is, is being um, kind of uh, not cajoled, but moved in the direction of her passions. Um, so she's at Liberty University. She's absolutely um, just loving it. She, she, of course, she loves the Christian environment, um, but I think she loves the community. And, and, and she's been in similar situations as all three of us where she's always gone to predominantly white schools. Um, she, she has a, um, it's interesting. She, she's, she, is, she is a daddy's girl, so she's a lot like me. She's situationally, she'll be an extrovert, but most of the time she'd prefer to be in her room, just kind of chilling out. And, uh, but she, she makes friends very easily. Uh, 
And I think that that has benefited her because she's not making friends based on the color of people's skin. And I can see that. And, and now, now this generation, as you know, is, is so much more aware because of social media mm -hmm. about what's actually going on in the world because everybody has a phone. And, and I noticed that socially, she's, she's very engaged. Just about every night she comes downstairs and she tells us the latest. <laughs> you, mom and dad, you've got to see this post. You've got to see what they did uh, in, in Minneapolis. You have to see what happened in Atlanta. They just had a march in, uh, in Washington, D.C. And I, and I thank God for that because I see that she's aware of it. But at the same time, I don't sense that there's a just a, an, an ill will or a bad feeling um, that she has toward any other race. And I thank God for that. So so yeah, I think we've been very, very intentional about trying to push her toward her passions, let her know, yes, there's, it's realistic. You, you're an African-American woman, you're black, you're gonna face some challenges, but none of those challenges are gonna stop you. If your uncle can go to the Naval Academy, if your cousin can go to the Naval Academy, if you're, you know, we, she, so here's what she tells me, David. She tells me, she says, well, look at David Jr. Look at Corey, look, look, at, uh, look at Justin, look at Ashley. She says, I don't have a choice but to be successful. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so to that point, the example, to, and, and of course I know that we're fortunate, I do realize that, but the example that you all have set, Ashley, that you've set, that, the, that your boys have set, David, Jada now is on a path where she says, dad, I have to graduate with my degree in three years so I can have my master's in four. Wow, wow, and, she's gonna be Justin, huh? Right, she wants to be like Justin and Corey and, do, and doing that, and David Jr. now working on his master's and wants to go to become an attorney. So, so I hope that answered the question there, Ash. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, again, it, I think it's just, it's a mindset. I think that we have kind of trained through our family. Um, I think, going to and I remember being at school and talking to Dave on and off and the one thing that was very kind of like the the singular thought that would always be laid was what you're doing is hard <laughs> and it's admirable that you are still doing this thing um which which is always it's always kind of interesting to me I didn't expect to be in this long I just hit my nine-year active duty anniversary um wow and I, I really didn't, and I don't know where it goes from here, but um, just just seeing, you know, what our family has done um, in the things that we have been able to accomplish is is one of those things you look around you and you're like, well, what am I going to do? Like, not do anything, I have to do something. Um, so that part is very motivating. It's awesome that, that, you know, that all of us feel like the bar has been set high. You know, I, I, like I said about granddad, I looked at granddad, and to me, he set a high bar. Um, you know, being able to actually thrive in that environment in the, in the 50s and produce a family full of really talented folks like he did um, set a high bar for me. And, and I said, well, if I have more opportunities than he did, then I've got to even step it up more. And, no um, and, you know, having that kind of character and that kind of strength and to be the patriarch, um, I want one day to, have to be that guy. And, and so, yeah, and so each of us, each generation, as we go forward, I hear Corey saying the same thing now. He's like, Dad, you know, I feel like I have to do better. I have to do even more. 
And, um, you know, I don't want him to feel pressure necessarily, but I want him to be motivated by that. Absolutely. That's, that is a big thing. And I think we, I think the black community is talking a lot right now about generational wealth, right? And Mm -hmm. not just, it's not just about being rich or how do you make a lot of money really fast, right? It's about how are we going to rebuild this, this idea of Tulsa, right? And, and the Black Wall Street that was burned to the ground. How do we get back to a place where we were building um, our- And that's a story, by the way, that's happened in several communities. I was in, I was in uh, Richmond recently and this exact same thing happened. They had a really thriving Black community back in the 30s and 40s and it was just raised. And now, you know, being in real estate, I, I went down there to deal with this track of land right in downtown Richmond mm-hmm. that has been basically since they raised this black community kind of not utilized by the city and now they're looking for ways to develop it and when I got into the history of that land um, it just hurt it just broke my heart that this land they took the, they took the land away from these these families and they didn't even use it and now it's been kind of a blight on the community and they're looking for ways to develop it. And they had a thriving black community there 70, 80 years ago. So, I mean, it's, it's really disappointing to kind of see that repeated over and over in so many different communities. And, and we as a country thinking, oh, we don't have a problem. I went to my son, I said, David Jr., how would you feel if you had this successful business and they could just come and take it away from you? Mm-hmm. And just you know, kind of set you back to stage zero. He said, well, I'd be upset. Well, that's what's happened in our community so often, um, you know, that now you just need to be, you know, you need to be smart and you need to understand and be aware that, you know, you've got to do better. You've got to work hard and you've got to, you know, preserve your wealth. Yeah, really good points. Really good points. And again, us with our family specifically having the, having the, I think the foundation from our parents um, and our grandparents to be in positions where we can create that generational wealth. Um, I think across the board, right? Like Dave, you may be a little bit ahead of us here, but uh, <laughs> I, I would say even with myself, you know, and, and I think about land a lot, right? Cause that's the one thing that they're not making more of. Um, I own two houses now. And to me, like real estate on that smaller scale and so soft flex on the, on the home ownership, but to, to, on that smaller scale, I feel like, okay, this is how I am planning to build. Uh, what am I personally doing? And so to even be in a position to do that, right? And, and buying a home at 24, I think is when I first bought my first house was Impressive. right for anybody, right? Let alone a, a black woman. So, so I think that that was something else that in this, in that mindset that we were kind of instilled with of like, why not? Right. Why not? If I can, if I can do this. Um, okay. So pulling it back a little bit to the Academy lens again. So we talked uh, before we started recording about some of the recent events linking directly to the academy with the alumni association um, individual and his racial remarks that were recorded on social media and then um, inside causing strife inside of the brigade of midshipmen and sort of highlighting the fact that racism or racial prejudice implicit biases and things like that are still very prevalent uh, in this day and age, as alumni, what what are your thoughts on those types of situations? And the fact that black midshipmen are kind of, like you said, Chuck, because of social media and everything, are very aware of it, one, and being kind of pulled and 
feeling called to do something about it. Yeah, that's that. That's interesting because uh, someone sent me that particular post on Facebook to, for me to view, and uh, it was needless to say it was, was ridiculously disappointing, right? To hear to hear those types of comments um, be voiced, and um, but I. I can't say that I'm, you know, I can't say that I'm entirely surprised by anyone, not not just a Naval Academy alumni or any other uh, person, but just because that particular sin of racism is in the world, and um, and it's going to take an awful lot for us to 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 work through that, for that to be healed and forgiven, and and then and additionally, generationally. People have ways that they have thought for a long time. And the, the only difference was is that it was recorded, right? So now at the academy, I this is very interesting because the brigade now, they're able to be aware of all of this in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. I just played in a golf tournament last weekend, uh, or last week, and I played with about seven Naval Academy graduates. So we were 92, 93, 94, 95, 96. The subject never came up. Hmm. So, so the interesting thing is this. Um, I think that, I think that uh, I, didn't, I didn't sense that there was any, any animosity from, from my former classmates because we've all been maneuvering through this minefield for a long time. Mm-hmm. And we understand that that progress does take time and, and that you just can't, you can't spend your entire life trying to uh, resolve other people's problems. Right. You know, so I, so I hope that, I hope that kind of speaks to that, but yeah. I just thought it was interesting that none of my classmates mentioned it at all. That is interesting. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll say this, you know, I, I, I see a lot of that stuff happening and, and it's, it just reminds me of things we do in our society, you know, how we get into these places of denial. I can appreciate organizations that recognize there's a problem and are willing to address the problem, mm-hmm. right? Where, you know, you see, I don't know whether it's the Catholic Church and, and the, you know, they know they knew there was a problem with some of the some of the priests, and they knew they just moved the priest around for a long time, and then when they were confronted with the problem, um, you know, they kind of put the put the wagons around in a circle and and when there's a problem you have to really address it right and and it's sort of like with the police departments now they know there's a problem they know there's been a problem for a long time they know there's bad police officers so when you see a police department rally around to say we're not the problem that is a bad sign that's a problem <laughs> because it's a problem because everyone knows there are bad police officers. We're not saying all police officers are bad. We're saying there's a problem and let's address it. And, and so to see them kind of rally around and say, you know, we're going to band together and we're not going to be called the bad guys. Well, guess what? There are bad things happening and you need to address them. It's what I love about the Spurs. You know, the Spurs recognize, hey, yeah, we've been one of the more forward thinking community organizations. Um, but we recognize even we have a problem. It, and they, had, they just recently had put together a, a, a racial uh, panel of people to kind of think about how can we do a better job in the community and how can we do a better job representing the people who are coming to the games. 
Um, and, and so, you know, I think part of the challenge there is to, is to recognize the problems. So my question when I hear these things going on at the Naval Academy is what are the lead, what's the leadership doing there? Are they, are they rallying around and saying, we don't have a problem, we don't have a problem? Or are they saying, yes, we have a problem? And are they addressing the problems by saying, we can be more open, we can be more thoughtful? When we look at our staff, do we have representation? Is Ashley the only uh, African-American, you know, native Indian person on the staff? Can we do a better job than that? Um, can we represent to our students, um, you know, the diversity that's in this country a little bit better? When you go out into the fleet, you know, is it going to be easy for you to hide as a racist? Um, we don't want that. We don't want those pockets where people can hide. Um, one of the things I'm enjoying about this current time is that we are having to confront our history. If, you, if you're married and you, have a, you, you did some bad things to your wife and then you try to say, well, okay, I did some bad things, but just, let's just move on. You know, don't even think about those bad things. Let's move on. I'm a different person now. Well, that's going to be hard for your wife to believe because they, she doesn't see a contrition. She doesn't see a, a desire to make things right. You know, the Bible says there's a, a zeal to do what's right, right? When you find out you're in sin, what, what do you do if your heart is right? You get a zeal to do what's right. And I don't think our country has quite reached that point where we have a zeal to do what's right when we recognize we had people in chains. I mean, we, we branded people. We acted like people were not even human beings. That's a problem. And to, and, to, and to act like we still don't have people today that wish they could go back to those days and, and make America great again. Uh, I'm not sure exactly the time when America was great. Like I love the country. I love what we were founded on. But we've been a growing country for the last 250 years. I mean, we've been learning and growing and getting stronger and better. But I'm not sure which great you're referring to when you look back and you say, make it great again. We need to continue to evolve. People say we want to get back to normal. Yep. No, I don't want to get back to normal. I want to get back to better. Like, I want to be better than we were before this COVID crisis. I want to be better than we were before the, these, these, these racial disharmonies were brought to the surface. We need to be better uh, and continue to evolve. So, you know, when I see those things happening at the Naval Academy, I wonder what's the leadership doing? Are they closing the doors and rallying around and saying, we're okay, we're okay? Or are they recognizing, wow, there's a big problem across the board. And we have to, we have to go out of our way to really root this out because this is not acceptable to any of us. We know it's a problem. We know it's a problem in the military as well as other places, and we're going to root it out. So, so I, I'm looking for that response from the leadership. Do you think from the channels that you have seen, again, from the lens of alumni specifically, and I don't know how tied in you are to the Alumni Association. I know I'm not personally. I, it just so happens I, because I work there, I know, I just know what's going on. Um, yeah. But from an alumni perspective, have you seen very much of that, of formal recognition or something that you would attribute to the Academy as doing something? Well, I was on the Naval Academy Foundation Board for about 10 years mm -hmm. um, after I graduated and spent uh, quite a bit of time kind of talking to the leadership. And I think there was a, a desire to get more diversity, both on staff and with, the, with students. I, I think there was just not a knowledge, an understanding of how to do it. Mm -hmm. And so we had, we had kind of goals and thoughts, but no real concrete plans on making, a, you know, making things better. And then, you know, it through the military, People are there two years, three years, and they're gone. So it's not like you can have great sustained efforts a lot of times. Right. Um, 
especially when you get one guy in who, who really takes it as a priority, the next superintendent will not take it as a priority. He has three years and he's going to pick five things and he's going to work on those five things. And, and so that was a real challenge to have sustained efforts to create the environment um, that we really wanted at the academy. So um, I, I think it can be difficult in the military to, to do that. And I don't know that I've seen a, a sustained effort to do it. I do see people recognizing there's some challenges. Hmm. What have, have you seen very much, Chuck? I don't know how tied in you are to other than other people or me <laughs> telling me what's going on. <laughs> And I'm, and I'm not that tied in to the Alumni Association. Um, and so, so personally, I, I haven't. I, of course, I receive, the, I receive the magazine every month. And, you know, I, I take a look at it. I go through. But I haven't. I, I'm not that tied in. So I'm, I'm not aware of what's actually going on on the yard, mm -hmm. right? And, and in those boardrooms and with the leadership of the school. And like David, I do, I do hope that the leadership of the school is willing to do what some of these companies are doing, like Amazon and Apple and Nike, where they're actually recognizing that there's a problem and that they're going to put a plan into place to try to, to at least address it. Um, I do pray that that's the case. And I think that there will be, there will be some public pressure, right, so to, for them to do something. Um, and unlike a public school, a public school, people, they speak with their money as well as their mouth. So at a public school, I, we don't have to attend that school. But um, at the academy, it's a different situation. And so I think that the, the public pressure is going to have to, is going to, have to be more, more uh, stringent. Um, but I believe, you know, I believe in the goodwill and good hearts of men. And I believe that they'll, they'll do what's right in a situation like this. Yeah, I would agree. I, it's it's going to be a mixture, I think. Um, I think that we do have good people with good hearts sure. uh, at school. But sometimes people need that nudge, though, and need the pressure from, from people like us or people who are experiencing disparities or this, the disparities that we are talking about to kind of lean on them in terms of, hey, I need you. I need you to take more action or I need you to do something more than what has or hasn't been done in the past. Um, and that's been interesting to watch as a faculty member and as someone who um, abnormally has access to a lot of high ranking people. Because, you know, in the fleet, you don't, I'm not talking to my 06 every day or calling him on the phone to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. You know, he, and he's very much, you know, probably not going to be interested in what my personal thoughts are anyway. So I'm in a unique position to, to kind of have access to these movers and shakers at school, which has been interesting to share with them uh, some of the things that I've been through in my perspective. Um, but it is a good point to note that we on the outside, uh, the kind of the public push is going to have to be larger. Um, I know personally, I have been a little bit disappointed in kind of the the knee-jerk reaction to let's do something immediately right now, but then there's no, it, you can tell that some of the things that haven't been fully thought through, so then they kind of, you start, and then they kind of deflate or lose momentum very quickly because it hasn't been fully thought out. And, and a lot of that, all of these things are tying back into leadership, right? It, it's, have you developed a plan? Have you brainstormed it? Have you brought people in? Have you done your due diligence and your research? Um, to be able to explain. And Dave, we talked about this the other week because that was one of the first phone calls I made when I started feeling internally conflicted with 
the academy's position, the protests for George Floyd and what that meant for the midshipmen. And, and I was just not knowing like, what do I do? But, you know, do you, have you done the research to even be able to, if somebody comes to me, can I explain to them what is going on or will it be led with emotions? Will it be led with, you know, this is my experience and maybe it's not everybody's, but you should feel the way that I feel and not be able to convey it in a more uh, succinct manner that you're going to be able to relate to. Cause like, while education may not be a leveling playing field, if I can speak to you in, a, in the language that you understand, not being my demographic, you are more likely to listen to my side of the story than, than not. So those things are important. And I think, Dave, going back to something you said earlier about the academy being a safe place before you kind of leave, and Chuck, you said this too, you experienced more of the racial disparities when you left school. I think that goes to the points that you are both bringing up in terms of having to face that there's a problem. I think before this, this social media and the millisecond of knowing everything and um, everybody is kind of, you know, wants to be on the, the road to change and action and, and affecting change, um, we are forcing people to voice their opinions on these things. Whereas I would, I would argue that when you were in school, when the both of you were in school, you weren't asking your roommate from Kentucky, like, hey, what do you think about black people? Or what do you think about slavery or racism? It was kind of like, hey, we're going to class. Like, what do you think about lunch at King Hall? Or what do you think about practice today? And that's sort of the thing, I think, with military people, and I would say even like police or first responders or things like that, you're so reliant on them and, and their ability to do their job well. And do you have my back? Can I rely on you? That you don't see any of those things. I don't see you as a black man. I don't see you as a, as a black woman or, you know, a minority or a short person or a tall person. Can you do the same things that I can, can do? Can you do your job? Yeah. Can you do, yeah. Right. And so now, but now we're forcing inside of the brigade, I feel like midshipmen are looking at each other and asking them those questions. And some of them are getting answers that they're like, oh no. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that, you know, the, the thing about the academy and we say being safe, but one of the big advantages there is that we're all in the same bucket, right? Like you come in, they shave your hair, they, you know, all start yelling at all of you and all of you are kind of, you know, um, put in the same bucket. And so when you're in the same bucket, you tend to trust each other, right? Like you have to lean on each other and that builds a different relationship. So part of what's happening out in, in society more as a whole is the conversation is beginning to change relationships. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's where things start to change. Whereas that's where I think the military has been at a bigger advantage because when I'm in the, in the foxhole with somebody and we're both getting yelled at or we're both getting shells shot over our head, it matters a whole lot less whether you're black or white. It just matters, do you have my back and can you do your job? Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that's where the military has had the advantage and particularly the Naval Academy and its training. Um, but like Charles said, you get out into the greater um, world and there's less of that. Right. There's less of that stress, that shared stress. And, um, you know, it's particularly at different ranks, you have different levels of shared stress. Uh, and, and so it's a it's a little bit of a of a different challenge uh, out in the in the military as a whole. So I, mean, I think the academy has that unique advantage of saying each class is going to be put under the same stress and you guys have to rely on each other. You have to. You have to be able to count on each other um, for a variety of different reasons. And I think the relationships built there um, have more of an opportunity to be balanced. That's a good way to put it. 
Okay, so I have one one last, I think, formal question. So with um, the military has kind of always been sort of at the, the tip of the spear, if you will, in terms of larger social issues. So the Navy was one of the first to begin integration, right? Um, and that was a very, very big thing for the Navy to do because they were like, yep, we'll do it. And started putting, you know, black people into positions that they were not previously allowed to. Uh, the military has been very vocal about the recent protests, uh, Black Lives Matter, where their stances are. You know, Admiral Mullen, who's on the board of trustees um, for the Academy, has wrote a think piece in The Atlantic, just very much, you know, weighing in opinions on, on what's going on. What are your, both of your thoughts on the rhetoric of the military weighing in on something like this? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll take that first, Charles. I, I think that they, um, I think things are changing a little bit. I think the, the military, as I said, when I first came in, I thought they were always kind of ahead of the curve, whereas today I don't think they're ahead of the curve anymore with a lot of this stuff. And particularly when you see some of the larger issues on whether it has to be, um, you know, with women in certain combat positions or whether it has to do with, um, Gosh, you know, uh, what was the policy they had? Don't ask, don't tell policy. Mm -hmm. You know, they waited a long time to kind of get rid of that policy. Um, and, and that just kind of, it shows that it, things have been shifting somewhat. Um, so I, I don't know that the military is always, is nowadays as willing to take the lead in some of these social issues as they have been in the past. And, um, and, and I think that's a little bit unfortunate. Um, because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's about, supposed to be about character and it's about supposed to be about doing your job and representing everyone and fighting for everyone. Um, so uh, so I, I think, the, you know, the military needs to kind of take a close look at themselves and trying to, you know, figure out, hey, we, we're supposed to be a leader, right? We're supposed, to, um, we're supposed to be the picture of what the United States strives to be as far as harmony goes, as far as working together, you know, we, we cannot see color lines. We can't afford to see color lines because we have to count on each other. If I send you out to do a job, I cannot have a prejudice against you and put you in a more dangerous situation than I would put someone else in. You know, there's just these lines you have to draw in the military uh, in order to be an effective fighting force. Um, so I think we just need to get back to being that, right? Being, you know, being the leader instead of, following public opinion you know chuck talked about public pressure to do such and such. yeah you know i'm disappointed that it would take public pressure to do the right thing we should be doing the right thing mm -hmm. and um and so i you know i i'm i i'm a little bit surprised that we've taken a step back in that leadership role um and i i i'm hopeful um, that we'll we'll step forward again yeah yeah and and so along with that i do i agree I agree that the that the military that they did used they used to be um, they used to lead the way in terms of social social issues, but I think that was before social media. I think that was before <laughs> social awareness, and it and so in some respects it may have been that they led the way because they 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 could respond faster than the general public, right. and and now we're definitely seeing a shift. So. I, I would I think if the military would just apply its values, right? What are the values? Yeah. Like integrity, 
<laughs> loyalty, honor, right? service, yeah. honor, service, equality. And if we would just apply those values, it wouldn't take so long to change decisions like don't ask, don't tell or, or, or whatever, whatever you may have, have it. But here's the thing. The biggest thing in the military is supposed to be leadership. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. And that but and leadership doesn't only apply to one area of our lives or of our society. Leadership doesn't only apply to wartime situations. It doesn't only apply to to the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. Leadership applies to moral leadership and it applies to relational leadership. And so if we would be leaders, if the military would be leaders in these social issues as well, I think that would set the standard for the individuals who join the military. Right. So so when you get up in the morning, you know, when I get to work, everybody's going to have their class A uniform on or everybody's going to have their blues on. And if I show up and I have the wrong uniform on, especially in the Marine Corps, I'm going to get hammered. Right. And in like manner, people should know everybody in my office has integrity. Everybody in my office is loyal. Everybody in my office is going to uphold equality. And we're going to and we're going to lead the way with social issues and, and, and moral issues. And so yeah. um, I think the expectation that's set at the leadership level, it makes all the difference in the world because of course leadership is from the top down. Yeah, and but leadership doesn't come from those clusters on your shoulder. Oh. Right. Leadership comes from the way that you act and the way that you so I see a lot of admirals, retired admirals and generals in the finance world and in the consulting world. So I see a lot of a lot of them and you know, many of them still have great leadership skills, right? Even though, you know, they had to take those bars off their shoulders, they still are able to go out and kind of use the experiences that they've gained in the military. So I, I would hope that a lot of those young officers that are coming up will realize that, you know, don't rely on that cluster on your shoulder or those bars on your shoulder um, to provide leadership. You better think outside of the box and show people you know, love on people and look out for people and do the things that true leaders do. Um, because when you get out of the military, no one's going to care what you had on your shoulder when you were in the military. Yeah, you can boss some people around now, but later on, it's going to be your character that's really going to shine. Absolutely. And the, the dedication to continue to grow and develop those skills, right? Whew. Okay, so... We've been going for a while, so I will end this with by saying or by asking, um, and Chuck, we'll start with you. If you could say something to the brigade of midshipmen, what would you say to mids who are dealing with with this climate, culture, environment, and like their way forward? Oh wow! So if I could say something to the brigade of midshipmen, I would probably tell people, I would probably tell them what I tell young single married couples who are in my church. I always tell them. Don't look for the person, um, don't look for the right person to marry, right? So, so I don't want to look for another person to be who I should be. I always tell them, be the person you're looking for. So if, you, if, if we want people to treat us with equality and integrity, um, you know, it, fairness and justice, let's be that person. Will it be reciprocated every time? No, sir, no, ma'am. But one thing's for sure, if you become the person you're looking to looking for, you will attract those kinds of people. And then the and then especially at the leadership level, if you do have some bars on your shoulder, if you do have some clusters, if you would be that kind of person, 
then prayerfully, we'd get more of those types of people at that leadership level. And the people who don't think that way would retire or <laughs> would move on to a different uh, career. But I would tell the brigade of midshipmen, be that person that that you want, that you want to, to see. I mean, and if I can be that person, somebody will follow me. And if one person follows you, two people will follow you. Two four people will follow you. And that's and that's how every movement started. That's how Jesus's movement started. Started with one person and then now it has exploded. And so I think we can do that. Um just I think we can do that if we're just diligent in in, in being true to ourselves. That's awesome. Dave, what about you? Yeah, I man, I think that's great advice. I mean, if just if I'm leaving something with with people, you know, I would say just treat other people like you want to be treated. You know, it's known as the golden rule, right? Yeah, it, you know, we we did. We were talking the other day about the the parable of the good Samaritan, and and why is it so hard? Why do we why do we act like those two people, the priest and the the worker at the at the temple, who walk on the other side of the road when we see somebody hurting? Like it's so easy. We make a thousand excuses why I don't want to help that person laying by the road. And, um, and so, you know, I think we just, we need to treat other people like we want to be treated. If you, if, if, if I were laying on the side of that road, I'd want somebody to come along and say, let me help you. Let me put, take you to the end. Let me give the guy some money and tell him, charge me if you need more than this for this guy, you know, let, let me be that person. And, and so, you know, that's something I'm striving to do in my life is to be that guy. Yeah, I've done well and I've been very blessed, but I see people laying by the side of the road. And I'm going to do everything I can to be a help and an encouragement to those people laying on by the side of the road. And, and so, I, you know, I would, I would just encourage people, just young officers in particular, treat people like you want to be treated. And, um, and it's, it's obviously down the same lines that, that uh, Charles just said. Be the person that you want other people or you expect or hope that other people will be. That's great. Well, I, I don't have my timer up, so I can't tell you how long it was. But thank you very much for doing this uh, so quickly, too. Man, it's to tell you to wrangle our parents, it's like hurting cats. It's really, oh, man, that was it was a miracle I even got them all on at the same time. But um, I really appreciate you both. Um, you know, I've always looked up to both of you in a, in a really incredible fashion and just – been inspired by your achievements. Um, so I thank you for that. And I thank you for allowing me to, to be um, a mentor for your kids too, and to, to even be a light and to continue our generational um, foundation in, in building what it can be for the Robinson family. It's, it's definitely an honor uh, to be um, a positive force in that. So I appreciate your time. I'm sure um, now that I, I had to ask Uncle Ambrose for your phone number, Chuck, because I think I had like two or three different ones in my phone. Yeah. Um, so I will be in touch with you both um, on. You well, know, should we call uh, you Nicole now? Nijoni. Nicole. Oh, oh. Like Uncle Larry. Uncle Larry. Oh, I see. Oh, okay. No, is it? So I go by my middle name because everybody's name is Ashley. Oh, okay. I see. Six million people. But like I told Chuck, I was like, I don't know. Y'all have been in the game for 31 years calling me Ashley, so I don't know. It's kind of dedicated for us. But whatever's comfortable for y'all. But I'll be in touch. I'm I'm always trying to action and, and find things, especially with school right now, um, and being a support to the mids and really just an advocate for leadership development in in general. Um, so again, I appreciate you both. 
Um, I'll let you know when this gets published and I'll, I'll make sure that that all of those links are available and I won't edit anything to make it look like you all said anything crazy. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. You're well, good. Thanks. You're good. It's great all to right. see Ashley and uh, you. Thank you.